Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. I know there was lots of sickness going around this week, so glad to know that you who are here are over it and well. And uh, if you don't mind, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 10. We've been in John chapter 10 for the last few Sundays, and, and uh, today we will wrap up John chapter 10. And just to kind of summarize again, to catch us all up, including myself, uh, lots has happened in John chapter 10 uh, that, that regards the, the Feast of Tabernacles and bringing all these comparisons to, to Christ, bringing all these types to fulfillment in Christ, looking to Him. Uh, we, we go into the shepherd, uh, the shepherd theme of John chapter 10, where Jesus introduces him as, Himself as the great shepherd, the good shepherd. We looked at how in the Old Testament that is a common title, a common description of God. And also... We looked at how Ezekiel 34 has been fulfilled. Ezekiel 34 is a prophecy about the bad shepherds and how God was going to send his one true shepherd to shepherd the flock, speaking of the coming Messiah. So when Jesus shows up, uh, he finds, of course, that the shepherds are bad. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees are all corrupt. They're doing it for selfish gain. And uh, Jesus revealed last week as we looked that they are not even his sheep. They are posing, and uh, they are not doing anything good there. Uh, last week, in particular, uh, the verses that we covered there, we looked at several distinctions between the sheep uh, that are true sheep of God and those who are not sheep. As uh, Jesus told the Pharisees that they were not his sheep. They do not believe because they're not his sheep. So we looked at kind of summarized uh, John chapter 10, several points there. We looked at number one, his sheep listen to him. Number two, his sheep follow him. Number three, his sheep know him. And then lastly, we're adding, added this, his sheep believe in him. And these are distinct marks of his sheep. The Pharisees were not his sheep. They would not listen to him. They did not know and acknowledge him for who he truly was. They would not follow his teaching. They would not abide in his teaching. And they certainly did not believe in him. All right, so there was clear, clear distinctions there. But yet, they claimed to be right with God. Were they right with God? Absolutely not. Uh, we also spent a lot of time looking at verses 28 and 29. Just again, to kind of quickly summarize. Verses 28 and 29 are amazing passages on preservation, however you want to term this, preservation of the saints, perseverance of the saints, eternal security. I personally prefer preservation of the saints because it kind of reflects who is preserving me, right? It's not up to me to persevere. I do persevere because he is preserving me. Uh, it might be tomato to model there, but you get my point. Uh, verse 28 and 29, though, is just beautiful in that it creates an impenetrable wall, an irrefutable wall that those who are his sheep, those who are in Christ, those who have been saved by him are permanently, irrefutably saved and will never, ever lose their salvation. And just, just quickly to summarize that, verse 28 and 29, uh, it, Jesus says, just a few quick points we looked at, Jesus gives his sheep eternal life. His sheep will never perish. No one can snatch his sheep out of Christ's hands, and no one can snatch his sheep out of the Father's hand. So it's amazing here we have this uh, Jesus giving eternal life. How long is eternal life? If it was something we could lose, it would not be called eternal. It would be called eternal kind of sort of maybe, right, life that I give you. Something different than what he says here. He gives his sheep eternal life. His sheep will never perish. So in those first two statements in 28, we find a positive. He gives eternal life. Eternity never ends. Uh, they will never perish. He gives the negative. So not only will they continue on in eternal life, but they will never perish. And then he says, they're all in my hand, that we are secure. We are in God the Son's hand. And then if to add strength upon strength upon strength, he says, and also you're in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. And so we looked at that and how secure we are, and that if as a believer 
you still struggle with that, perhaps based on past human relationships uh, that ebbed and flowed and came out of strength and, and weakness and et cetera, uh, from relationships that you're in or just, just your human knowledge, trying to wrap your mind around this love of God. There is truly nothing like it that we have. Nothing is this secure. It is amazingly secure. Whereas we looked at in discipleship time, Roman 8 says, nothing in the past, present, or future can separate you from the love of God. There is absolutely nothing that can separate you. Jesus died for your sins. Sins have been paid for. You have been given his righteousness. Your name is in the Lamb's book of life. You are secure. And to think that you're not secure would to think that there is something more powerful than God that could pry his hand, it's a figure of speech, pry his hand open to remove you. So if you think you could lose your salvation, you're thinking that you personally are stronger than God. So that some of these, this is a good time to check yourself on some of these scriptures, all right? But also to remember these to add comfort to other true believers. And we looked in discipleship as well that you don't want to add comfort to someone who is in unrepentant sin, all right? There's a different course of action to take with there. Take there. But for true believers who are believing and repenting, this is the great security we have. All right, let's move on today quickly to verse 27. And I'm just going to read 27 through 42 today. We're only going to cover verse 30 through 42, but I want to keep that in context here because we ended uh, last week at the very end of that paragraph. So verse 27 reads, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, It is not written, is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege of getting together together with other believers today. We have you in common, and we thank you for the great salvation that we have received through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the reminder that we've already had, that this salvation that's provided through Jesus Christ is absolutely secure and there is nothing that can take us out of your hand, uh, whether it be in this life or whether it be in death, past, present, or future, that you have given us eternal life. We will never perish, and we rest in the security of being in your hand. Help us today as we study your word and some difficult concepts that we're going to be looking at. Help us to gain a right understanding and keep a right understanding of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in verse 30, and I saved this last week because from this verse, there is a lot that has come from it that is heretical, and also has been a place where others have, have really delved into it and made it a point of orthodoxy, right theology, okay? It's a very short verse, but it has a huge history to it in church history. So look at verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says, I and the Father are one? And you want to be careful. You don't want to stick your hand up right away and answer, all right? Because there's a lot. Now we're delving into the Trinity. And as many theologians warn, 
a little to the left, a little to your right, and you got heresy on either side, okay? So you want to be careful as you're looking at these issues. And if you have any questions, uh, Tyler Lawson is our in-house expert on the Trinity. So see him afterwards, all right? He, he has read a lot on it in the last couple of years and, and does a wonderful job. All right, so, uh, so a couple things we're going to look at, what Jesus does not mean and what he does mean on this, all right? Uh, so number one, Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father are unified in the eternal protection and preservation of the sheep, the Christians. That's obvious. Uh, we see that in context there. Verse 28, Jesus says that we're in his hand. Uh, we're also in the Father's hand. Nothing. You're not going to, you can't pull out at all. It is a united effort. They are one in this purpose, one in this cause. So when Jesus say, there's no one that Jesus has in his hand that is not in the Father's hand, right? It is one. There is no one that, the Jesus, that Jesus dies for that the Father did not give the Son in the first place. And then we've also looked in John 6, 37 and 39 that all those that the Father has given the Son, Jesus will raise on the last day. They are unified in the salvation, the complete process, and preservation of the saints. But also... Jesus is claiming something more here, and the Jews pick up on this. Number two, and Jesus is also claiming equality with God the Father. And this is a given. We've seen this throughout the book of John. The book of John opens up with this kind of statement as well. If you'd like to turn there, just turn over to John chapter 1. And uh, John chapter 1, I'm just going to read through verse 3. And then I always like to add, skip over to verse 14 as well. They're in first John, and John, sorry, just John. Uh, John chapter 1. But very similar to what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 10, verse 30, uh, John opens up the gospel with, right? So he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John 10 verse 30 is also reflecting these truths that John opened up with, that God the Son is God, but yet there is distinction. Okay, so there in verse 1 of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning God. So there was never a point when the Son, God the Son was not, there was never a point when the Son was not God. He was not created by God. He has always been God, all right? Also, we see in verse 14, something that we obviously know here as believers, as Christians, that the Word put on flesh. So God the Father did not put on flesh. God the Holy Spirit did not put on flesh. Who put on flesh? It was the Word, also referred to as the Son, God the Son. All right, so those things are, are obvious to a degree. I and the Father are one, one in purpose, yes, but there's more to it than that. They're also equal. They are the same in essence, all right? And this is going to lead to interesting little discussion here uh, throughout church history that this verse has, has really has been a place to dive in to defend right orthodoxy. Also, you have heretics diving in to prove something different, okay? So, what Jesus is not saying here, number one, he is not saying that he is the Father. So, so we'll get into this in just a moment. Some wrong theology, and not just wrong, like sometimes we make mistakes, all right? Innocent mistakes as we're teaching. Teachers can make mistakes. We're not... I am not infallible, I am not inerrant, right? So I can make a mistake. But this goes into heretical doctrine where you change everything. You change the core of the gospel. You change who God says he is, and you purposely do it over and over. This is heresy, all right? So some will say that Jesus is not of the same essence or the same substance as the Father. Now, let me warn you before we go any further. This, you're delving into Trinitarian issues here. So if you came today for a nice, easy, cuddly, warm Christmas passage, you, you missed it. All right, I am sorry for that. It is not today. 
So you will need to focus, turn on your thinking hats, and, and help me out here, all right? So Jesus is not saying that he and the Father are one. Uh, there has been a lot of, lot of debate in church history to try to say that Jesus was not of the same essence or the same substance as the Father. But here Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They are one in purpose, they are equal, and they're of the same essence. Meaning, there is nothing less than God the Son in him than there is the Father. All right, let's explore this a moment. Uh, the statement reveals two persons, yet one essence is what, what we often say now. Uh, previously, it was mainly referred to as substance, okay? There's been a little change in theology terms because substance, sometimes people think of substance stuff, all right? But it means the same thing. Uh, the statement reveals two persons, yet one essence. Again, we're talking about Trinity here, uh, and we'll see how this plays out. Arianism, uh, created by a bishop in the 300s named Arius, if you're a little bit familiar with church history, this is not a good guy. We want to make sure we label him up front as a heretic, all right? Uh, Arian was a heretic who changed who Jesus was, and he changed up the the Trinitarian formula of who God is, you might say, and it was so much so that he said Jesus was not of the same substance as God, the Father, that he was not equal to God, the Father, that he and the Father were not one in essence, but only in agreeable will, only in agreeable purpose, all right? So Arian says, goes on to say that God, the Son, uh, Jesus was not actually fully God as God the Father is, and that was actually he was actually created by God the Father. Okay, so this is a huge, huge, huge nuclear bomb that that drops in church history. Uh, I'm going to try to get through it quickly there, but during the 300s, you have uh, Constantine, who is the emperor of Rome. Who is, who is claiming to be a Christian. Uh, history seems to reveal that he is not, all right, but he claims to be a Christian. You have the, those that are on the Aryan side um, uh, fighting with those on the Orthodox side, saying, no, God the Son is of the same substance as the Father. And a big debate arises, big church divisions split, and you have bishops siding on either side. You have one great bishop that rises to the front there, Athanasius, and Athanasius, this, this Arianism is what it's called, is, it rises and flows for years, and it actually is still going on today. Officially, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, take on this doctrine, this heretical doctrine, embrace it fully, and that is what they are, all right? But you have Athanasius who rises up against Arian. He is exiled multiple times, loses everything because the Arians rise in power and they kick all Orthodox Christian uh, bishops out and only allow Arian bishops in who say that Jesus is not fully God. And then the good side will get the strength for a while. Long story short, Constantine decides that he is going to weigh in on it. And it's always great when the government decides to weigh in on matters of biblical theology, right? Joe Biden would do excellent at that, I'm sure. So that's what, uh, that's what he does. Constantine decides to weigh in, and he weighs in. And, and he actually agrees on the good side. Says, oh, you know what? You guys are right, and, and I hereby gavel drops. I declare the, the good side to be right, that Jesus is of uh, the same substance as the Father. And uh, it seems good, but he, he ebbs and flows as well. And by the time he dies, he calls in an Arian priest uh, for, as, to, to comfort him as he dies, which in the church history now we're like, uh, what, what, you, just, you just don't trust the government in these things, all right? So long story short, there is a massive battle, and it's a, it's a neat theological point here. Uh, it comes down to one I, the letter I, and this, is, this becomes a catchphrase of if you're with right doctrine or you have wrong doctrine, and if you're with the Arian side or you're with more of the Athanasius side, the right side, what the Bible teaches, and it comes down to this. If you're taking notes, there's lots to take today. Uh, is Jesus the same substance as the Father? The word that they would use there is homoousius. Homo just means same. Ousius means essence or substance, okay? So it's just one word, but this, this is what it came down to. Uh, and there's a battle for the eye. You'll see it here. Or similar to the Father, 
which means homo, and then you put an I in between those two syllables, homo, homoi, usius, okay? So there is a big battle erupts, and within this one word is packed all that doctrine. And so you would ask someone such a thing. Do you believe, instead of, do you believe Jesus is the same substance as the Father? Uh, you would just say homo, moi, or homo, uh, usius, or just I, and people began to catch on, all right? Now, this became such a battle that you had, they had called all the bishops together of right belief to form the Nicene Creed, Nicene Creed. And this is also interesting because there is, there is a bishop named uh, Nicholas at the Nicene Creed signing. And it does seem to be, and again, this is a little bit of extra, all right? It does seem to possibly be St. Nick. All right, not the guy that comes down chimneys and all that stuff that's happened now. But this, if you trace that all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way back, there does appear to be a Christian who did lots of good, and he was actually of right orthodoxy. So he actually was on the signing of the Nicene Creed. Interesting point. You can look that up further, all right? But he was there for the signing, and he was on the right side of that. So that's a good thing. All right, the Nicene Creed comes out. This is a creed. It's easily memorizable for them, but it also became a stamp. Uh, is your church believing in the Nicene Creed, or has it rejected it? So all those of the Orthodox view uh, subscribe to, they created this, they, they voted on this, and all the churches that were of right orthodoxy held this. Now, I've just pulled out a quick excerpt, but I want you to see how they did this, or how they worded it. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, they'll say, we believe in, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, all right, he's not less than God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, again, directly against Arianism, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And you can hear John 1, 1 through 3 echoed in there. You can hear John 10, verse 30, echoed in there as well. I and the Father are one. They're one substance, okay? Uh, the wrong views of Arius would continue to rise and multiply throughout church history, though. And again, even though the Nicene Creed came out, even though Constantine said, hey, that's wrong, and ebbed and flowed and changed his mind, all right? But Nicene Creed came out, even though he had not had great, great, uh, theologians in there, Athanasius, Athanasius Contramundum, if you've heard that before, Athanasius versus the world. He was like, it, there for a while, it seemed like he was the only one holding right orthodoxy, and he had to be cast out into the desert and stay there for a long time, multiple times, but he kept on, kept on, and he would not change. They could take his power away, they could take his, his, his pulpit away, they could take his church away, take everything he owns away, and he would not change his mind that Jesus and the Father are one. It was just just amazing point in church history there. Now, uh, also from this, you get into another modern day heresy called oneness theology. Oneness theology is common with United Pentecostal churches. Also, very common, of course, and most popularly uh, made known through the the works of T. D. Jakes. All right, who came from the United Pentecostal Church. All right, oneness the theology is a belief that God does not exist in Trinity, uh, but that God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit are all one. So oneness theology. This is also often expressed through modalism, and the way it would, would be thought of is that God can be either the mode of the Father, God, God could either be Father, or it could be Son, or it could be Holy Spirit. So they are all literally one, just one. They're one in essence, but yet they're not distinct in person, okay? This is oneness theology. I kind of put it in a, a, maybe an easier way here. Oneness theology sees God the Father, Son, and Spirit as one in essence or substance, so they kind of get that part right, but then, and they see only one person. So not God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, only existing one or the other, all right? Trinitarian theology sees God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as one in essence or substance, but distinct in persons. All right? So it's, 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 
extremely important to kind of wrap your mind around what the Trinity is not. Sometimes it's easier to determine in our minds to process what the Trinity is not. All right, and so one thing we find out here, they are of the same essence. God and the Son are one, but yet there is distinction, all right? And that's the big difference between oneness theology and Trinitarian theology. And, for, and practically, as you read this, the, read your Bible, this, this is really glaring, right? If you just think about a few things, like who died on the cross? Was that God the Father or God the Spirit or God the Son? And uh, who did Jesus pray to in the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, he prayed to the Father, right? So he didn't, he didn't say uh, uh, pray, praying to himself. He prayed to the Father. Who did the Son and the Father send on the day of Pentecost? That would be the Spirit, right? And so you can just process this a little bit through. Whose voice was heard as Jesus was getting baptized? Who descended on Jesus uh, like a dove? The Holy Spirit. And so you see the distinction, yet the oneness throughout Scripture. All right. So God the Father, Son, and Spirit are all referred to as God in Scripture. Yet there is only one God. That leads us to our second point here. Uh, Jesus is not saying that he is another God. So it's, so, hang on. <clears throat> Sorry. Polytheism is the belief in multiple gods. This is not what Jesus is saying. And this is often what Christians will be accused of through uh, Muslims and Islams will sometimes say something like this. Even, uh, even, even um, uh, uh, Israelites or, or, or Judaism will say this. That, that Christianity believes in multiple gods. Christianity does not believe in multiple gods. We believe in the Trinity. One God, same essence, but distinct in person. All right? Monotheism is the belief in only one God. And the Bible over and over, Old Testament and New Testament, reveals that there is only one God. Lots of passages you could go to. I just pulled two from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is, this is monotheism. There is only one true God. There is not a multitude of gods. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. And these are, this is extremely important. You can go to Isaiah 44. Anthony is at 46 and 48 as well. Isaiah 44 is good. 46. 42, yeah, lots of an Isaiah. Uh, I'm just thinking of through that, that, that just really tee off on this point, all right? But Jesus is not saying that he is another God. He's not saying there is the God that you guys are worshiped, then there's me over here, a separate God. One God, same essence, same substance, but distinct in person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is Trinity, all right? Uh, so most heresies change this up. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses, for example, would say God, God the Father created the Son, and the Son is not equal to God. The Mormon Church, right, they would say the same thing, that Jesus is great, the best of the best, but he was created by God the Father and is not God. And they also would believe that they will become their own gods. If they go through the right process, they will have their own planet, and they will be able to determine how to save the souls on that planet, all right? But Jesus, God the Father, Old Testament, New Testament, says there's only one God. There's not a multitude of gods. All right. Now, God exists uniquely in Trinity. And a quick definition that might help out is one God who eternally exists in three distinct yet inseparable persons. One God who eternally exists in three distinct yet inseparable persons persons all right so i and the father are one that's verse 30 i don't know how much further we're going to get today but we're going to try all right let's get back to verse 31 so uh what do the jewish leaders do when they hear jesus is claiming to be equal with god obviously they do what they've done before here verse 31 they pick up stones again john says to stone him so this was not the first time they were angry and mad to the point they wanted to put him to death uh, if you go back just a little to John 8, 57 through 59, Jesus claimed to be I am. Remember that? And what did they do? They picked up stones to throw at him again. 
he took on the name of God from Exodus chapter 3. And they immediately knew what he was saying. Uh, over here in John chapter 10, he's been doing the same. He combined that name of God, I am, taken from Exodus 3, and put the good shepherd with it. It says, I am the good shepherd. Both of those, one officially the name of God, I am, uh, with shepherd, and combines them saying, look, this is me. I am the God of the Old Testament, and I'm right here in front of you. Uh, they picked up stones to throw it in there. John 5, 16 through 17, uh, they also began to hate Jesus because he was claiming equality with God. I'm going to turn over there with me and read that one. John 5, uh, 5, 16 through 17, through 18. John 5, 16 through 18. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. All right. So this is what's going on in John chapter 10, verse 30, verse 31. This scene that is happening, the Jews pick up stones to throw at him because they pick up what he is laying down, all right? He claims to be the giver of eternal life. He claims to be the one who, if you believe in him, you will never perish. He claims to be uh, it, you're, the sheep are in his hand and God the Father's hand. And then it's like, I and the Father are one, not just one in purpose, but one in salvation, eternal salvation, and one in essence, one in substance, one in being. They totally get what he is saying, so they pick up stones to throw at him. Look at verse 32, John chapter 10. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And this is quite common we know it what Jesus is referring to as those works just a couple of places to quickly look back look up at John 10 25 through 26 Jesus answered them I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me that's extremely important but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep all right and we've noticed that these works that Jesus is doing also in Acts 2 22 we see this word used it's in conjunction with the supernatural signs, miracles, wonders, works that were performed by Jesus. So Jesus, they're about to stone Jesus. And Jesus says, for which one of the works do you want to stone me to death for? And these works were God's supernatural validation, authentication of Jesus. I know we've mentioned it much, but we recall the lawgiver Moses, when Moses was going to the Pharaoh. How will they know? How are going to the, to the Israelites as well? How will they know that you sent me? I'm giving you three signs, and you'll do these three signs, and they'll know that God has sent you. All right? So Jesus says, which one of these works? Raising someone from the dead or making a blind eyes open or deaf ears to hear, the lame to walk, uh, feeding of 20,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Uh, which one of these works are you stoning me for? They were not seeing that the works were God's witness to listen to, to believe in Jesus. Going down to verse 33. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. So instead of seeing, I mean, it's just ridiculous. The things that he was doing, they're so blinded uh, that they will not acknowledge that obviously this supernatural event is from God. And you recall even the blind man that was healed in John chapter 9, they bring in the witnesses. They bring in the guy's parents. Is it, was he truly born blind? And they all agree, yes. And then, then they, the Pharisees command the man born blind, give glory to God, but not to Jesus. And what does the blind man end up doing? Worshiping Jesus, all right? He knows who Jesus is. But they're blinded by it. They think that, that okay, God worked through this man, but, but, but he can't be validating him. No, he absolutely was, authenticating him in every way. 
So their conclusion is that he is blasphemous. Now, uh, the belief this is a point of application. We guys have covered it a lot in John chapter 10, and we'll continue, or, or John, the book. The belief that Jesus is God is an essential doctrine of Christianity, but it puts Christianity at odds with every single other religion, or every single one, including Judaism, all right? The, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin hated this, and accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Non-Christians are okay with a man named Jesus who was a good guy and did amazing things. But when you tell them that Jesus is God, it usually calls one of two reactions. Either they acknowledge yes, or they absolutely hate what you are saying. And odds are they will hate you as the messenger as happened to Paul when he would teach that Jesus is God, and they would try to stone him. Now, we find the same scenario repeated over and over when Jesus is preached as God with the apostles. Now, should we avoid such a doctrine if it can stir up such a hateful response? And the answer is, of course, no, right? Because this is the gospel. This is the truth. Uh, the fact that Jesus is God is an essential part of the gospel that is required for salvation. We do not get to create our own gospel, tell people to believe in this, and then they'll be saved. That's fool's gold. It's worth nothing, all right? If I or an angel from heaven, Paul says, brings you a gospel other than the one that I gave to you, let him be condemned, let him be anathema, accursed by God. Why? Because you've given someone something that has no power of salvation. It is essential to believe that Jesus is God. Uh, and this is what we find often as you go through Scripture. This, the Pharisees believed, I say that in the smallest level, believed in God. We found out as we went through John chapter 8, I believe, for a moment, but they didn't believe in him fully and who he truly was as God. So that you find that this, this point, Jesus being fully God, uh, is a point that separates the sheep from the non-sheep throughout the book of John and, and still to this day. They believed in Jesus as far as he's a man right there in front of him. They knew he really did exist as a human, but they did not believe in him as God. So this point is extremely important to the gospel and who Jesus truly is. Uh, they accuse him of blasphemy. Now this is interesting and turn quickly with me over to Leviticus, chapter 24, verses 10 through 16. They accuse him of blasphemy. And it's interesting to think if, if he actually did truly commit blasphemy. Uh, the Pharisees were great at taking the law, manipulating the law, adding more laws to the law. Uh, and perhaps they even did this with Jesus as far as the law of blasphemy. The law of blasphemy that God gave was very strict, very concise. And uh, here we have a perfect example of it. Let's look at what it is. Leviticus 24, 10 through 16. Now an Israelite's woman's, Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed then they brought him to Moses, and his mother's name was Shalometh, the daughter of Deborah, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Verse 13, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Now, two things should be noticed here with what is blasphemy. Uh, blasphemy was cursing God. Uh, the, 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 this man used the name, used most likely what he's referring to here is the I am. 
the, the way that they would speak it, but he used it and added cursing to it, all right? So he cursed the name of God. Did Jesus ever curse the name of God? And no, he, so it's really, again, you'll find this a lot with them. They'll, they'll take something, take a law, and then they'll manipulate and twist it to get their way. And it seems to be what they're doing, even with Jesus accusing him of blasphemy. Did he ever say anything bad about God? He never did say anything bad about God. Did he ever curse God? He did not curse God at all. And we also see that the entire congregation was to put the person to death. And both of these, that Jesus did not curse the name of God. The entire congregation was not called. These Jewish leaders are so mad at who Jesus is claiming to be, they want to put him to death on the spot. Now, today, how many people would be stoned to death if blasphemy, if the blasphemy law was still in place? It would be a massive population reducer, all right? It would, it's amazing, right? It's, 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 it's throughout a popular music. It's throughout popular TV shows. It's like if you, I go to the gym to work out, it's just everywhere around us. If people are using the name of God and blaspheming the name of God. Does this mean that we are to stone them and have a pocket full of rocks? No, it doesn't mean that. All right, but it does. Is it still sin? Absolutely, it is still sin. And this is why we as Christians, we exalt the name of God. You're here today. We just worshiped God, right? And we hold him and we hold his name in high honor. And when we do hear people use the name of God and curse the name of God, it it. I don't know about you, but it's very irritating, and it hurts, and it's, you, you, don't, you don't want to stone them, but you do hate to hear the name of God cursed. And now, but it also, there should be something in us that goes, this person is obviously lost, right? This is the clear sign. Those Christians, those who have been saved by God, love God. And for a Christian to go around cursing God, I don't think these things can happen. Uh, it, it, it possibly uh, it could happen in, in, a, in a random moment's notice or something. I don't even know. But for a person to blaspheme, to curse God, to say God, and then use a word that would, that would imply you're sending God to hell, like this, this is bizarre. Like a true Christian does not speak like this. Christians honor the name of God. They worship God. They exalt God. You're here to praise God today so that you see a massive difference in the way the world, the unsaved, handles the name of God and Christians handle the name of God. And it can be, it can be, it is becoming increasingly obvious when you're out in the world doing whatever you're doing that they, they'll use the name so often blaspheming God. So I'm just bringing that to your attention today. Yes, it is still a sin. We as Christians hold the name in high honor. It should irritate you. Don't pick up a rock, though. But you could use it as an opportunity to witness uh, uh, to them. All right? Are you saying you're cursing the one who will judge your soul? Are you, ju are you cursing the one, the only one who has the power to save your soul from hell? Uh, maybe so. Think on that. Verse 34. Let's continue on. Jesus answered them, it is, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. And here Jesus quotes from Psalm 82, verse 6 to 7. It says this. I said, you are gods, the sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, this is another passage where heretics, false teachers, will take you to, Mormons uh, do this especially, they will take you to this verse when you say, do you believe that you're going to be a god one day for real, dude? And they're like, oh, well, yes. You know, look, look over here. Jesus actually refers to people as gods. And you read it, and then you go to where Jesus is reciting from, and it, it makes uh, sense with our right interpretation of Scripture. Again, Jesus, God is presented as one God from Old Testament to New Testament. No people becoming gods. But this, 
is a figure of speech where God refers to the exalted judges of Israel as little g-gods. They are like gods. They have great power. They have great ability to judge. But they're misjudging, and God is going to make them die like in a low position. That's all that's being said here. So Jesus is not claiming that people become gods, but he is saying, you're judging me for blasphemy because I claim to be equal to God, but yet you didn't accuse God for blasphemy over here and, and from Psalms. All right? So he's using this to, to build his position. Let's go on. Verse 37. I am doing, <clears throat> I am not doing the work of my father, then do not, if I'm not doing the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the father is in me, and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So here we have the third time Jesus uses works, works. Like, if you don't believe the words coming out of my mouth, because you can fake words. I mean, you can claim anything you want to. I could claim to be Godzilla, all right? I could claim, you could say whatever you want. Words can come out. But these works that God is doing through him, they're undeniable. He's like, if you don't believe me just because of my words, believe these works that the Father is doing through me. Uh, now, also, he says uh, here, look at, Look back at this passage here. He says that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. All right, verse 38 there. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And this is another passage where a lot of heresy has come from. But yet it's also a place where sound orthodoxy, right belief can be taught as well. It's a difficult passage. Think about it. Read it slowly. Look at it. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So we've, we've already covered here. We believe in the Trinity. One God who exists, eternally exists, one essence, yet distinct in person. But yet there's something here. Uh, understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. But yet there, Jesus is not claiming to be the Father and, and, and the Father is not claiming to be the Son. All right? Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. The Father and the Son coexist at the same time. Now, this, they are equal in essence, distinct in person, yet there is union within the Trinity so that there are not three gods but one God. And this is a, another one of these heavy theological issues, terms that you might want to look into or to think about. But in theology, this mutual indwelling is referred to as mutual co-inherence. And if you're asking, you want me to break that down in an easy earth analogy, there is not one. All right? It is, there is not. It's the same with the Trinity. When people try to break it down and use analogies here to, oh, it's just like this. The Trinity is super easy. It's just, I don't even want to give them because they're wrong. But they'll come up with a quick, quick fake uh, analogy, and you're like, Oh, that's easy. No, it's heresy is what that always ends up being, okay? So same with this. You, you look at what this is, like, whoa, what is this? This is unlike anything that we can compare to here. That's when you're talking about the Trinity. And you'll find heretics try to make the Trinity something easy and something simple, and it's not. It is something... It is, a, it is, to a degree, a mystery that we'll never fully wrap our minds around, but yet we know what is revealed in Scripture, and we know what it is not. So that's an interesting passage. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Same essence, yet distinct, but yet there's this co-inherence. They are the same God, one God. All right, uh, let's see. Oh, oh, oh. Time is catching up. Well, it is interesting, though. This is also this co-inherence is involved with you and Christ as well. Uh, look at this passage, John 14, 19 through 20. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. And here it is, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Again, this is perplexing, but this, is, this is similar to 
Not that we are part of the Trinity, but there's a similarness here, this coherence that that Jesus is in the Father, and the, you are in me, and I am in you. So there, there's, it's a similar passage here. So this, this union that we have with Christ, again, we see why it's unbreakable, why it's imperishable, why we'll never lose it, why it is eternal, because it's tied to the relationship with God the Father and God the Son. It is permanent, all right? Uh, lastly, let's move on down to verse 40 and 42. Wrap up John chapter 10. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John did about, said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And just to kind of summarize quickly, verse 40 to 42, obviously we know that God sent John the Baptist as the great uh, uh, prophesied herald that would come before the Messiah. And he preached repentance and belief in the one to come. He prepared the way for the Messiah. So those who believed in the messenger, who believed in John, also believed in Jesus. We find that those who did not believe in John and did not believe his message also rejected the Messiah. But those who believed in John believed in Jesus. So you see in this, in John 10 is ending with Jerusalem, with the temple, supposedly the head geographical location of worship of God and right theology, casting Jesus out and accusing him of blasphemy. He goes out into the remote area where John had been baptizing and finds people who believe. They believe John. They believed in Jesus. And this is the way it was supposed to be. But those who rejected John rejected Jesus also. In summary, uh, Jesus clearly claimed to be equal to the Father. And when given the opportunity, he did not deny it. The fact that Jesus is God is often the distinguishing belief between sheep and those who are not his sheep. Many people have claimed to be right with God, yet deny his deity. But let us remember the words of Jesus found over there in John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us your word to feed on today. And thank you for allowing us to spend a moment trying to wrap our minds to somewhat around some difficult issues today. We know and acknowledge that you are incomprehensible and that we cannot fully comprehend all that you are, God. And uh, that is a good place to be. Uh, heresy often comes when we think we can fully wrap our mind around you and know every single detail. God, I pray that we would acknowledge you as the, the almighty, the great creator of the, everything, all-powerful who exist in trinity and may we see these these doctrines as true as right and help us to be as aggressive and tenacious as defending right sound orthodoxy right belief as athanasius was willing to lose everything to stand on the fact that jesus is god of the same essence help us to know these things help us to teach these things so that heresy does not creep in even amongst us today god we Help us to, uh, to lift your name high and to exalt your name with our lives as examples and with our minds and with our lips, Lord. And we thank you and we worship you today and acknowledge you as the great I am. And it's his name we pray.